music there from the Choir of St. David's Cathedral in Wales, welcoming you to our Leap of Faith. And to our Welsh listeners, Thieve Gwil Dwy Hapas. Happy St. David's Day on Sunday. Well, in the programme tonight, we'll hear the folklore behind the patron saint of Wales. We'll also gain some insight into what might be learned from desert monks. And I'll talk with Dr. Kevin Hargarden, who leads the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice, where he works as a social theologian. And he'll challenge us to ask why we have to start stopping. How to fight back against our exhausting busyness. But first, Robert Fisk is an award-winning writer and journalist, well known as a Middle East commentator since 1976 and correspondent for the British independent newspaper since 1989. He speaks Arabic and was among the few journalists from the West to interview Osama bin Laden, which he did three times between 1993 and 1997. His next book will be launched in early 2021. Robert, welcome to The Leap of Faith. I, I want to start by putting the conversation we're going to have into some kind of historical context. The end of World War One and the division of the Middle East. Can we trace where we are today back to that point? Yes. Um, in fact, the end of World War One produced a whole series of new frontiers, which in many ways were defined within those frontiers by religion or by the religion of the people who lived there. Uh, Yugoslavia, most of the Middle East, Northern Ireland. Remember, that border was drawn in the same 17 months following the First World War as the rest of the Middle East. And in all these places, the victors of the First World War, primarily the British and the French, created what we can only call sectarian states, states based on, and of course they put this forward as a form of liberation, as a form of fairness, based on the strength of each religious community within those frontiers. Of course, in the most complex form, this in Lebanon, you found you had Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, Maronite Christians, Orthodox Christians, Armenian Christians, Druze. And so the French, in the case of Lebanon, and in the case of Syria, specifically created societies which were based not on ability, ability to rule, ability as political entities, but as representatives of religious groups. So, for example, the French created a system at a time when Lebanon's majority was just about Christian, in which the president must always be a Christian, in which the prime minister must always be a Sunni Muslim, in which the speaker of parliament must always be a Shiite Muslim. And that is the case today, even though perhaps the Christians are now only at the most 40% of the population of Lebanon. So this system of sectarianism, which has nothing to do with religious belief, um, was always based on religious communities. And by doing that, the Western powers in the Middle East effectively ensured a system whereby those with ability will never receive the rewards of politics because they have to be the right religion to get the job. And you cannot pull this system to pieces because the moment you do that, the other religious groups will say, hang on a second, just a minute, we want this job, we want that job. And one of the great tragedies in Lebanon at the moment, in Iraq, for example, but particularly Lebanon, is that the young people who are not particularly religious-minded anyway have come back from education abroad and said, we don't want to live in this sectarian society. But they have no way of breaking up the sectarian society because every element, every institution of state is based on who is the boss. In the central bank, for example, in Lebanon, it's got to be a Maronite. If I go and see a deputy governor of the central bank, I have to see two in order to balance the religions of the people I'm going to see. You see, in the case of Lebanon, sectarianism has become 
the state's character. So you cannot say, okay, we're going to have a modern state. We're going to clear religion out of the way. Because the moment you do that, Lebanon ceases to exist because its identity is based on religious division. So the idea of sectarian could almost be seen in total isolation from religion at all because there doesn't seem to be very much belief going on or driving the, this behaviour. No, although if you turn to the various people who say we believe, they believe even more in the sectarian state than they would if it was a non-sectarian state. I'll give you an example. There was a time some two decades ago when a retiring president, a Christian Maronite, suggested that um, there should be civil marriage and civil divorce in Lebanon. And as one, the imams, the mullahs, the uh, Christian bishops all gathered together to oppose this. And the reason was that the if you want to be divorced in Lebanon, for example, you have to be divorced through your church or your mosque. And huge amounts of money are made by the clerics by organizing divorces. And they were standing to lose a lot of money. Remember, sectarianism also involves land, property. It's about economy. If, you're, if your village is a Muslim village, then the mosque will have considerable say over the uh, distribution of land. The same applies in Christian areas. So the moment you attack sectarianism, you attack property, you attack the economy of religious groups. And so the, the element of religion, which is supposed to be important, the spiritual element, is much less important in all these various states, and you might ask the same question about the North, than the actual system of religiously dividing people up. Because whenever you have a, a, an, an outside power says, we're going, to be, um, we're going to protect the people of different religions, it means they're going to divide them. If religion is part of the problem, is it part of the solution in any way? It should be. It should be. But I think education is the solution, and that means secular education. It doesn't mean that you... You, you ban religion from education. I mean, it's, it's, especially in the Middle East, it's the place of the three great Abrahamic religions. You, you've got to accept that it's part of history, it's part of culture, and part of, as I say, economy. But what the Middle East lacks, and there are a certain number of very brave academics who point this out constantly, is secular education. Um, there's a very fine um, Islamic scholar uh, Tarif al-Haladi, a very old friend of mine, great Palestinian family, although he lives in Lebanon. And um, he was until recently a professor at the American University of Beirut. And he has written the most recent translation of the Quran into English. He is, of course, himself a Muslim. And uh, he's also written a book about um, Muslim stories of Jesus. Uh, Jesus actually um, produces miracles in Muslim stories, not the same miracles we may be used to from the Bible, but nonetheless. And of course, uh, Jesus and Mary exist in the Quran, although Jesus is regarded as a prophet, not as the son of God. Um, the point, though, is that he gave a lecture two years ago, a most brave lecture in Beirut, in which he effectively challenged the idea, which is pervasive, in, especially in poorer Muslim countries like Egypt, uh, to some extent in Syria, particularly in Iraq, the idea that the Quran contains everything. It's all there. If you just know the Quran, if you can just quote it by heart, if you're a Quranic scholar, all you need to do is not necessarily become an expert in jurisprudence, merely know your Quranic teachings. You've got everything. It's, it's like the pocketbook for life. And Tarif's idea is that this is preposterous. And he gave a lecture which he entitled, Does Islam Need a Martin Luther? 
you know, the great reformer, right? And, and very unpleasant reformer in many ways, a Christian might think. And um, his argument was yes. He gave a lecture in Beirut. Um, only 36 people turned up. Uh, two of them were my, my wife and myself. And he basically said, look, the Quran, like the Bible, is an invitation to learning. But it does not contain everything. It does not contain, he said, Karl Marx and Beethoven. And he's right. Mm. Of course he's right. And his point was that so many of the prominent Muslim clerics now, and I would in, in Egypt I would apply this to Christian clerics too, do not have sufficient learning to be teachers. They know their they know their Quran, they know their Bible, and they know the historical teachings, but they do not have a sufficient foundation in secular education. Another problem seems to be that we live in a, in a world now where everybody's trying to simplify things down in, into binary, black and white. And when you look at conflict and you look at Syria, you look at the Middle East, and, and you, 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 it is your, your land. You, you know the place so well. No, it's not my land. Too many Western people think it does belong to them. I don't. I am always, and I've been 40, almost 44 years in the Middle East, and I always say I am a guest there. It is their land, not mine. The problem is that so many Westerners arrive, claim they love it very much, and think it belongs to them, partly because they'll say, well, basically my parents are Christian, so I belong to the Holy Land. Mm. They don't. It's not their property. Which leads me to where I was going, and, and the clarification is very important there, but is that we now see the, the conflict there as being the West versus Islam. Yes, that's so not a bad version. Not a bad version of what's happening. You see... Oddly enough, this doesn't ever get, well, I ask this question, but it doesn't get asked by people directly. And I always discuss this with Muslims who particularly don't discuss this. The West sort of accepts it in an odd sort of way. But by and large, you know, we in the West have lost the sort of Victorian type faith that we would have found quite normal 100 years ago. Whether this was because of, I don't know, the uh, Treaty of Berlin, the First World War, um, the Second World War, I don't know. In the Middle East, there's one thing that's quite clear, is that however ill-practiced it may be, people still believe in God and they believe in their religion. And by and large, almost every Muslim family I know will try to live their life within the family and within their own society as Muslims, thinking all the time of what the Quran says and what they're taught about God and honour and integrity, which is what Christians, in quotation marks, because I sometimes think there aren't a lot of them left, uh, used to do. And I think one of the big questions in the Middle East, which is not thought of by the West because of our arrogance and not reflected upon by Muslims because of their personal feelings, perhaps of humiliation, is how come that a part of the world, the West, which has largely lost its faith, has managed to impose itself economically, culturally, militarily, socially upon a part of the world which has not lost its faith. Mm. How did that happen? And Muslims, I think, are constantly wrestling with this problem. How come they have kept the faith with God and yet they have to jump to attention when the West speaks? Robert Fisk, thank you for joining us on You're The League of welcome. Faith. You're welcome. March 1st, this Sunday, is St David's Day, the patron saint of Wales. And one of the more unusual connections between Wales and Ireland? Well, it's St Patrick himself. Legend has it that the saint was born in Wales. Well, to find out more about St David, I'm joined now on the line by the very Reverend Dr Dean Sarah Rowland-Jones of St David's Cathedral in Pembrokeshire. Steve Gwildui Hapas. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to talk with you. 
Welcome to the Leap of Faith. For our listeners this evening, you are in a very interesting spot and a particular connection to St. David himself. Well, yes, I am the Dean of St. David's Cathedral, so I live in the tiniest city in Great Britain, which is St. David's. Uh, it's, we're right on the westernmost peninsula of Wales. Um, we have the sea on three sides, and actually, if you go to St. David's Head on a very clear day, you can see across to Ireland. And I must admit that the radio in my kitchen picks up RTE better than it picks up the BBC. That suits us very well indeed. Now, we're going to talk about St. David. Uh, let's start off with, well, I heard he was a, a teetotal vegetarian. So he, he was one Absolutely. of the first. Absolutely, He was known as the Waterman. Um, it's so, he lived in the, in the 6th century and there seem to have been all sorts of connections with the ascetic traditions of the, the monks in Egypt who went out into the desert, the Desert Fathers. And they all felt that having simplicity of life was a good way to come close to God. So he was known as the Waterman. He, he, he didn't drink anything stronger than H2O. Also, he used to stand up to his neck in the sea reciting the Psalms, so they say. He did follow a vegetarian diet, and he, his poor old monks had to do their plowing, pulling the plows by hand. He, he was quite a tough and ascetic guy. Now, we might be mistaken by associating either a daffodil or a leek with him as a saint. That wasn't actually his symbol. No, no, that, that comes much later. It's to do with uh, if you're fighting the English in a very muddy field and you put a, put a leek in your, in your hat, you know that that's one of ours, not one of theirs. But uh, no, he's associated with the dove. Um, it's said that there was a, a holy synod at a place uh, called Brevi, which is now known as Llanthewi Brevi, St. David's Brevi. Um, and they were discussing truths about the nature of Christ and salvation and all of that, um, and getting nowhere. And someone said, we must send for David. You know, he's holy and he's wise. And so he was called for and arrived. And there was such a big crowd that it said that they couldn't see him. So he put a hanky on the ground, stood on it, and it lifted up under his feet, creating, well, yet another small hill in central Wales. Uh, you'd think we had enough already, but there we are. The ground rose up, and he was able to be heard and seen, and his wise words won the day. And as he spoke, it said, a dove came and settled on his shoulder. Dove being, of course, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, the attestation that that he was speaking God's words. So if you see a statue or an icon of St. David, you'll often find a dove either sitting or about to land on his shoulder. Now, your cathedral is on the same site as the original monastery. As far as we know, um, when the Normans came, they pretty much obliterated everything that went before, wherever they went, you know, whether it was building castles or building churches, making it perfectly clear that they were the ones who now were in complete control of both political and religious power. But our expectation is that they will have built the cathedral on the place where, where the holy site was. And it's in the bottom of a, uh, a lovely sheltered valley, just a half a mile inland from the sea, so with a stream running through. So it's a fairly obvious place to have a settlement. Do we know, did St. David have any connection with Ireland or any influence on, on the formation of faith here? Oh, yes. Now, often people say, why? Why are you at the, the back end of beyond on the far western uh, edge of Wales? And we say, no, no, we're not on the back end of beyond, because in the 6th century, it was like a maritime motorway. It was far, far safer, far, far quicker to travel by sea. 
And so we're very close to a place called White Sands, um, a beach which would have had a, an estuary there and a small port. And there would have been a lot of travel between here and Ireland uh, with Cornwall, Brittany, Spain and beyond and all that, that Celtic traffic, not merely of the saints backwards and forwards. But there are a number of Irish saints who are associated with St. David. Um, the one that particularly springs to mind is St. Aidan of Ferns, also known as St. Maddock. And he was sent over here to be part of David's community and to learn from him before returning to Ireland. And in fact, that's a connection that is um, alive today, so to speak, because um, the European Union has given funding through its Interreg project for uh, links between northern Pembrokeshire and Wexford. Um, there's, of course, you've got the Fishguard Rosslare Ferry that joins us, and also St. David's Cathedral and Ferns Cathedral. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff happening, historic research, archaeology in both places, um, pilgrimage routes are being developed, uh, the old stories and legends are being revived, um, and that will be something to be celebrated through this year, next year, and into 2022. So if you're, if you're down in the Wexford part of Ireland, uh, do think of coming over and, and having a pilgrimage journey to St. David. And how is the day celebrated in Wales? Oh, wow. Uh, all sorts going on. I mean, obviously, this weekend it's on a Sunday, but I have all sorts of memories of at school of... I mean, often we would we would take we would wear daffodils and we would take leeks and we'd eat the raw awful things in the <laughs> in the playground and breathe you know it's as bad as garlic on each other for the rest of the day, but the big thing would be the eisteddfod, um, which is that sort of cultural gathering and competition of music and whether sung or choirs individuals instruments playing music, poetry art and. Certainly within St. David's, the city itself, we have a, a huge weekend of activities. I mean, on Sunday morning, um, the bishop will be here and she will lead uh, a pilgrimage from, we have a place called St. Non's, um, linked to his birth. It may be that he wasn't born here, but liturgically, so to speak, we observe his birth as uh, a, a holy well. There are a lot of wells in the vicinity. So we we have a pilgrimage from the well associated with St. David and St. Non round the sort of outskirts and into the city and the bishop will, will climb the steps of the, of the Celtic cross in the city square and bless the city and then we will come down and have prayers at the shrine of St. David, our homegrown saint. And music as well, Sarah? Oh, a lot of music. We have a, a really excellent choir here, and I'm hoping that uh, you'll be playing some of their, of their music during this programme. Well, let's do that now. Sarah Rowland-Jones, Dielk, Dielk and Vau. Ah, Christo, you're welcome. The choir of St. David's Cathedral there with the motet to St. David from an album called The Feast of St. David Music for Matins, Eucharist and Evensong. Well, finally this evening, Dr. Kevin Hargaden leads the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice, where he works as a social theologian. Originally from Kildare, he's an elder at Lucan Presbyterian Church. 
Well, tomorrow, Saturday, from noon till one, at the Carmelite Centre on Anger Street, Dublin, he kicks off a series of Lenten reflections, which will run every Saturday until April 10th. Kevin joins me now. Kevin, welcome back to the programme. It was back in 2018 that we were talking to you about theological ethics in a neoliberal age. Tonight, we're looking instead at busyness and what we might learn from some desert monks. Tell me about the monks. Uh, the desert monks are some of the most interesting people in early Christianity. Um, they're often called the fathers and the mothers because they were, they were men and women who um, understood the Christian faith as being in various ways compromised by its success in Rome. And one of their responses was to go out into the desert where they wouldn't be distracted by anything and uh, pursue God with a kind of single-mindedness, a zeal. Um, some of them were probably insane, but the ones that we've kept, uh, the ones who still are with us in their writings, have an amazing, profound psychological insight. Mm-hmm. So they tell us an awful lot about the spiritual life. Many of them were truly great theologians, but they're accessible, I think, to the average person because they, they are able to tell you something about what it means and to And what period human. are we talking about? Um, the particular guys who I've been um, drawing on for this talk are in the kind of late 300s. So a very, very long time ago out in the, the wilderness in Turkey. Mm. Um, it's about as remote as you can get from Western 21st century life. It's like somebody said to me recently, you know, the idea of life coaching isn't all that new. The Stoics wrote, you know, a wonderful Absolutely. philosophy about how we should live. And now you're saying these same monks had a handbook by which we could uh, live our lives in a better way. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the best self-help book ever written was Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, we think of these as heavy Uh, intellectual tomes but actually they were read widely at the time and they were understood to be books that helped you live life better and in the case of the particular guy who I'm looking at Evagrius he wrote this book uh, which was basically a practical guide to being a spiritual person which was called Practicon and it lists all of the different obstacles and hurdles you're going to face in life and how you should overcome them. So what have you learned? I've learned that clock watching pre-existed the invention of the clock So there's this particular passage where he talks about what he calls the noonday demon. And it's the uh, threat that comes upon the monk about 10 o'clock in the morning when uh, the monk suddenly becomes deeply restless and nothing in life is satisfying him. And he has this wonderful poetic way of describing this. He says, it feels as if the sun stops moving, as if the day is 50 hours long. And he describes going out of his cell, out into the outside world to make sure that the sun is in fact moving because he's convinced that there's just nothing going on. Mm. And in that moment of desolation, he's like everything I have is worthless and everything that's valuable I don't have. So it's a feeling of dissatisfaction with the particular moment he's in. Okay, roll that forward and you could be describing the life of a person living in this century in Ireland. Yeah, somebody's stuck in this job where uh, it's not lunchtime yet and you're counting down the clock until you're able to go for lunch but it it never arrives. Or Mm. a student stuck in a boring lecture by a theologian who doesn't know when to shut up Mm. or somebody in a cubicle doing data entry. I mean, this is, I read this and I thought this is exactly the experience I've had in some of my jobs. Okay, so I want to explore this a little bit further and to do that I'm going to ask you to give me some of the principles of social justice because I think think there's a meshing together of this. What what, what do we mean by social justice in this conversation? Social justice, I've often thought, is a kind of meaningless term because there's no such thing as private justice. So uh, social justice is the idea that we as a society aren't just uh, solitary individuals. Uh, We're bound together and we're 
we're, we have obligations to each other. And um, I think that in this particular conversation, they're really practical uh, obligations. Uh, we're, we're, we ought to be able to do a full day's work work should be available to people and at the end of that day's work you should be able to meet your basic needs you should be able to have a roof over your head you should be able to put food on the table take care of your health provide education for your kids and have a little left over for leisure and mm. um, that seems to me to be a very basic picture of what a just society would look like and it's important to state that even though we're very prosperous that's not the society we live in but we've had libraries full of economists in that 1700 years since those desert monks gave us a bit of advice What's happened? Um, well, I don't ever want to um, lay in on the economists. I feel they get a bad <laughs> rap. You know, they themselves called their science the dismal science. They recognised that it was often uh, a tough thing to read. But uh, there's a particular economist I'm interested in um, because he parallels the desert monks and his name is John Maynard Keynes. Mm. He was hugely influential in the 20th century. Mm. I mean, the way economics was structured by governments was called Keynesianism. This is post-World War II, exactly. post all of that. So yeah. until yeah. Maggie Thatcher came along with her neoliberalism, uh, his ideas were the order of the day. And he wrote an, a really fascinating little essay in 1930 called The Economic Prospects of Our Grandchildren. So this was at the very pits of the Great Depression, you know, and across the world, people were starving and there was no work to be found anywhere. And he said, the temptation might be great to kind of engage in a socialist revolution, but don't do that because what we've seen is huge growth in the last two generations. And if we go back to basics, what we're going to see is a huge further growth in the coming decades. And our grandchildren will live in a society that's so wealthy. And this is the bit where I was amazed. He says, the wealth will be so great, you'll only have to work for 15 hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> now, what I'm interested in is Keynes was right about productivity. In the time since he wrote that, our economy has grown 14 times, oh, you know, 1,400%. So we do actually have enough wealth to meet everybody's basic needs, but we haven't distributed that wealth. So mm. he was correct economically, but completely wrong socially. When I read that stuff in the Desert Monks about Acedia, I thought... This is the person in the gig economy who needs the next contract to make ends meet. That restlessness in our culture is perceived as a virtue, even though it causes stress that has undeniable health yeah. uh, consequences. So we need a society that has enough of a security net that means that people know they don't have to work themselves to death to make ends meet. And if people want to hear more of that, they can find out tomorrow at noon in Angel Street at the Whitefriars Church. And people can just come along if they wish. Absolutely, it's completely free. Kevin, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Michael. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. Thank you for listening. From our producer, Sheila O'Callaghan, broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and me, Michael Cummins. Till next week, goodbye.